Hello, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm the creative pastor here at CTK Bellingham. We are so excited that you're here this morning at 930. If you're online, we're so glad that you're here as well. I just want to jump straight into a story. So this last week, I got home from work, and my wife Kristen told me that our daughter, two years old, Brooklyn, had a present for me. And I'll be honest, I was initially a little bit suspicious because typically when my wife says that Brooklyn has a present for me, it means that there's a nasty diaper that needs to be changed. So I was a little restrained in my response. I wasn't immediately, yes, this is going to be the best thing ever. I started by preparing for the worst kind of present, but this time it was different. This time there was no dirty diapers. Instead, my girl came shooting out of her room like a shot out of a can, and she had the biggest smile you've ever seen on her face. She was filled with pride, and she gave me this picture that she had drawn for me. She said, Brooke, you make this. She still speaks in the third person. We're working on it. But uh, I said, thank you, sweet girl. Thank you, sweet girl. And I actually took a picture of it so that you could see it. Uh, so it's a, it's a portrait of our family. I'm, I'm, I'm the purple blob over on the right. I don't know if you can see the resemblance there. We got Addie and, and Brookie and, and Mommy and Daddy over there. And, and I show you this to, to, to tell you that if you're looking at this, this might not look like much to you. But I can tell you from experience that this meant the world to me. Not because it was drawn in between the lines, not because it was perfect, but because of who it came from. You know, I think so oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can misunderstand what God's actually looking for when it comes from gifts from us. If we're not a little bit careful, we can think that God is only looking for people who draw within the lines and create the perfect picture. When I would actually argue from my experience as a dad, all that he really wants is for us to know um, that we're actually thinking about him and say, hey, God, I made something for you. I think he's not always looking for the biggest gifts in the world because sometimes the smallest ones move the heart the most. Anyone know what I'm talking about in here? Anyone got a small gift that might have not seemed like much on paper, but it did a work in your heart? Because here's one thing I know about God. I know that our God isn't a taker. Our God is a giver. And if you don't believe me, I'm actually going to pull out the most famous passage in all of Scripture to prove it to you. So it's a declaration of this truth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. And there's some, there's some other stuff. His one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But for me, it's for God so loved the world that he gave. And here's why that's so important. It's because when you love something, you give. When you love someone, you give. If there's a relationship that's happening and there's no giving of time and affection, if there's, if there's no actual giving that happens, it's fair to question, is that really love? But our God showed us by example, he gave everything. And so this week we're asking the question, what does it look like to follow in the footsteps of a God who gives? And we're going to be concluding our series that's called Start Small. Um, and so we're talking about what does it look like for us to even just take a small step towards the lifestyle of giving that, that Jesus actually displayed for us. But first, I would love the opportunity to pray for us. So could you bow your heads with me? Holy Spirit, we know that you are here. Where two or more are gathered, there you are. So Jesus, you are here. We're so thankful for that. We're thankful that this weekend isn't about us, it's about you. God, that in the chaos of the world, you say that you're our anchor, that's a hope, 
that hope is our anchor. So God, we just, we, we say that we have hope in you. We trust you in the midst of all that's going on in the world. We say, you are a good God. You are a good father. And God, we are here not so that we can just learn some ideas, God, but so that we can actually go out and we can, we can be a mirror that shows the world your goodness. God, would you embolden us? Would you enliven us? Would you remind us, God, of the gifts that we've been given? God, the gift of your spirit. God, that you're leading us. Jesus, we love you so much. God, this time is all for you. This is not for us, it's for you. So would you be glorified in this moment? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I had a little idea this week. Tell me if you guys have heard this one. I heard it a while back, but the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is actually apathy. Anyone hear that one? Okay, so like four people. So that's new. So you can just like allow that to kind of sit with you. Here's what it means. It means that uh, if you actually think about hate, it's quite similar to love in a lot of ways. If you hate something, you feel passionately about it. If you hate someone, at least you're thinking about that person. Apathy on the other end of the spectrum means that you could see a person, you could look them straight in the face and you just don't care. And so it's the lack of care that's actually in opposition to love, not the fierce hate of a person. And so this week, I was thinking about that concept. I thought that was a really helpful distinction, at least for me in my life. And I'm like, is it love and hate? It's like, no, it's actually apathy that I'm at war with in my heart. And so I was thinking about that concept with regards to giving, and I had this epiphany. What if the opposite of giving isn't actually taking? What if the opposite of giving is actually withholding? You see, giving has to do with what you have. And so the opposite of giving something away is actually keeping it for yourself. And that just really struck a chord with me because our God has withheld nothing from us. Our God didn't even withhold his one and only son. He actually made a way where there was no way he didn't have to, but he did it out of love. He gave much to us. And today we're going to look at a story that typically gets talked about from the perspective of love. Um, but today I really want to look at it through the lens of giving and just have it be kind of a structure, a framework, an object lesson on what does it look like to be a giver in a world full of takers and withholders. And so if you've been in the church for a while, you know this story. It's called the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible or an app, you can go ahead and pull that out. If not, it's going to be up on the screen for you. So we've got you covered. And so I'm going to read the whole story to you. And so it's, it's a little chunk of scripture. So you can just rest in this and allow it to be spoken over you. And I just want to encourage you. I just feel led in this moment to, to say, if you've heard this scripture a hundred times, a thousand times, what if this were a moment for you to listen like it's the first time and believe that God still has something for you? Because this is the living word of God. There's always something depending on the season that we're in. So I'm going to start in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Other uh, translations say actually trap Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, do or love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That's important. We're going to come back to that. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole. And Jesus replies with a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Great news. And when he saw the man, he actually just passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came there to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, go and do likewise. I think that verse 37 is so interesting. This, this lawyer says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say his name or his people group. I, I, I thought about it, and like, it's almost like Voldemort. It's almost like I can't even say his name. Like I hate this person so much that I'm just going to say what he did instead of who he is. Like, that, that's like the worst thing that we can do is pull a person's humanity from them. So we're just going to actually say what they did instead of who they are. And so uh, as we're reading this scripture, I just want to give you a quick tip. Uh, I don't know how savvy you are, but uh, here's maybe the most important question that you can ask yourself as you're uh, reading stories in the Bible. So when you're reading stories in the Bible, perhaps the most helpful question you can ask yourself is, who am I in this story? Because if I don't know who I am in the story, then I'll never know what this story was meant to teach me in its fullness. And so here's my first point, and this, this, might, uh, this might be something that you're hesitant towards, but I am just going to say it. I'm going to be bold. You are not the good Samaritan. I know, right? Bad news. You are not the good Samaritan. It's hard to hear. I'm sure that you're a great neighbor. I'm sure that if you saw somebody who was half dead on the side of the street while you were walking by, you would stop and actually tend to them. But the context of this story uh, tells us that you are not the good Samaritan in this story, God is. So God is the hero of this story. And if you're wondering where that leaves you, in the context of the Good Samaritan story, you are actually the half-dead dude lying on the side of the road in need of help. Nobody's giving me amens on that. That's okay. We're going to keep going. We're usually the character in the story who's in trouble, not the one doing the saving. So you see, this isn't just a story about a Good Samaritan. This is a story about the gospel. This is a story that we were half dead. Friends, listen up. We were half dead. We were alive physically, but we were dead spiritually. But a good God who was not like us saw us, took pity on us, and moved towards us. He bandaged our wounds. He anointed our heads with oil. That's actually in the scripture there. He made a way for us to where there was no way. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. Then he went away for a while, but scripture says he's coming back. Is that resonating with anyone? Anyone hearing this story through a new lens today? This isn't just a story about a good Samaritan. This is a story about a good Savior who saved me and who saved you. And in this story, we're not the one who's giving the goodness. We're the one who's receiving unwarranted, undeserved goodness. And why does this matter? It matters because it changes our whole perspective when it comes to living a lifestyle of giving. Even when we start small and find what's the small step that I can take towards the goodness God's inviting me into. We don't give because we're good friends. We give because God's been good to us. 
We don't give because we are inherently generous or because we need to. We give because God has given much to us. Friends, we are not the source of good in this world. We are the reflection of good in this world. We are the image of the invisible God. So we were meant to actually show in a tangible way the love of God that isn't ours, but is his. Don't ever forget that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So anytime that we give a gift, we're actually reflecting and we're actually responding to a better gift that's been given to us. So as we talk about giving, we do not give out of obligation. We give because it's an opportunity that's been extended to us because when we were half dead on the side of the road, a good God saved us. So scripture says, which of the three of these is the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So we're not the good Samaritan, but the invitation to us is this. This is my second idea, is go and do likewise. So in response to the goodness that's been directed at us, we get to go and we get to give to the world. Uh, But there's no way for us to go and do what the Samaritan did if we don't fully realize what he did. And so I want to talk about a few gifts that were given in this story. The first gift is simple. It's the gift of compassion. And so the priest and the Levite both see the man on the side of the road, but they keep walking. So the issue isn't that they don't have good eyesight, it's that they have an issue of the heart. They don't have compassion. The difference with the Samaritan isn't that he sees him, it's that he sees him and he takes pity on him and that pity moves him towards the pain. And so, so here's a question for, for you to wrestle with in your heart. Uh, it, it, when you're out in the world, when you see people in pain, do you move towards them or do you keep walking? You know, we sing all these songs at church where we're talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we say, break my heart for what breaks yours, Lord. And it's one thing to have a broken heart, but it's another thing to move towards pain. So what does it look like for us as a community to not just have broken hearts, but to actually move towards the pain and have compassion in our hearts? And I was talking to a pastor this morning. The interesting thing is right now in this moment of history, like it's not like there's, uh, it's most of us are in pain and most of it isn't very easy to see. We're not half dead on the side of the street. We just have pain because of loss and because of tension and because of stress and because of pressures and because of isolation. And so what compassion allows us to do is to actually care for people in such a way that we dig into their story so that we can see the pain and we can move towards it. It's not all physically uh, easy to see. We actually have to allow compassion to drive us towards people and their stories so that we can know how we can help. And that might feel overwhelming for you, but my encouragement is to start small. Who's a person that you can actually engage and you can hear their story so that you can move towards their pain? Second gift that was given is the gift of time. I get so convicted by this one. Uh, I'm not even going to try to preach it. I just want to ask you guys a couple questions. How many of you people in this room and at home, you can put your hands up too, uh, and uh, the Spirit of God will allow me to see you or or something like that. But uh, put your hands up if you are a busy person. You would consider yourself a busy person. And it might look different in this season. We see some two hands up in the air. That's that's double the busy, double portion of busy. Um, And how many of you guys cringe when plans change at the last minute? You're just like, are you kidding me? We had a schedule in place. I made the schedule. We're going to do the schedule. And it, it makes your blood pressure rise when something goes awry and when people are late and when things get in the way. You know, one of the things about Jesus that I admire so much and the Good Samaritan 
who, who, who occupies the role of Jesus in the story is the fact that I would call him interruptible. Does that make sense to you? He's interruptible. He doesn't just see needs and move on. He actually sees needs and meets them. So here's the real question. If God puts somebody in front of you who is in need, do you even have the margin in your life to help? Do we even have the margin for messy people in our lives? Because this is where the rubber hits the mode, or the road, the mode, which is French for road. Um, this is where following Jesus gets really practical because you can have the best intentions and the best ideas and the best heart, but if you don't proactively make time for people in your life, none of those ideas or ideologies or theology pieces are actually going to make anybody's life better. It's not actually going to move the ball in people's life. If you don't actively seek to actually create space and create margin in your life, you can have the best heart in the world, but your life doesn't allow you the margin to use that heart for the good of God. Friends, what would it look like for you to actually make time for broken people in your life? I would suggest that we start small. Would you even actually have the courage to pray the prayer, Jesus, would you begin the work of making me interruptible? Would you begin the work of making me interruptible? That's a dangerous prayer, but it's a good one. Would you show me what it looks like to prioritize people over plans? Last gift that gets given in the context of this story is the gift of resources. And in verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense that you may have. And this is... This is where it gets really practical. The Samaritan gives his resources. He gives his hard-earned money. And I know that people hate talking about money, but I got bad news for people. I actually love talking about money. And, and here's why. It's because a couple years ago, I had this epiphany that God's not actually after my money. He's after my heart. But Scripture says that there's this intrinsic connection between our heart and our treasure. It says where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And so even though God doesn't need your money, God doesn't need anything from you. God desperately wants your heart, so he's going to continue to go after your money because money's the thing that wages war on our heart more than anything else. It's what we think about more than almost anything else in this world. And so God's not trying to make your life difficult. He's trying to make your life meaningful. He's going to continually invite you to spend your money on things that are not just going to enrich your moment, but that are going to enrich your life eternal. He says, pour into, sow into. He's inviting us. Would you actually invest in the kingdom? Because that's not money that's lost. That's money that's gained. Because it actually echoes into eternity. So what does it look like for us to, 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 to stop thinking about our money like this? Especially in this season. This idea of giving, to me, is so countercultural in this season right now. Because there's so much chaos. And in chaos, what we tend to do is we tend to protect what's ours. But what would it look like to be a community that actually is generous in this season? You know, we, we always hear when it's, uh, the, the light is the brightest when it's completely dark. You could see a candlelight from so far away. I think about this idea of love, too. It's so compelling when it's in the struggle. Anybody can love on their honeymoon, but what does it look like when you're in a struggle, but you reach out in love anyway? In the same way, generosity it is going to be wild how beautiful it is in a season of so much upheaval and so much uncertainty. A generous spirit, whether it's giving our time, whether it's giving our talent, whether it's giving our resources, 
What does it look like for us to actually be countercultural and upside down to the ways of this world and to be a people who follow in the footsteps of a God who gives? This story is an invitation to give, not just because we're good, but because God has been good to us. Not because Jesus wants to make our lives heart, but because he wants to make our lives meaningful. And if you don't believe me, I want to prove it to you. I've got one more verse from this specific story that I want to share with you. So Jesus is talking to this lawyer. The lawyer's reciting the law. He's listing off all the things that he has to do to inherit eternal life. He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? When the lawyer gets done reciting the list, Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. That's one of my favorite verses, friends. Do this and you will live. And here's why I think it's so beautiful. When Jesus says, do this and you will live, if you actually look at the translation, that actually means do this and your life will be full. Do this and your life will have wholeness. Do this and your life will have joy. Do this and there will be a lightness to you. Anybody want a full life in here? It's just me and four other people, but I'm coming for you, four people. Jesus is saying, do this and you will live. It's not out of obligation. It's out of opportunity. If you want a full life, this is the way to do it. He says, it's not just about getting into heaven. It's about how we live our lives right now in a way that actually makes a difference in this world. It puts purpose in our heart. It puts fullness in our relationships. It puts connection between people. He says, if you want purpose, if you want connection, if you want direction, if you want wholeness in your life, then for the love of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself friends this isn't an ultimatum that jesus is giving us this is a road map this is actually an invitation to the fullness of life is it easy absolutely not is this what's going to sound good on a tuesday afternoon you bet it's not going to it's going to be being interrupted but being interrupted seeing people over problems like actually leveraging the resources that we've been giving, withholding nothing from people. It doesn't sound good in the moment, but it echoes into eternity and it creates a life of wholeness and beauty and uh, compassion. You see, I think we misunderstand the heart behind much of what Jesus invites us to do in the scriptures because we read it as a list of have-tos. I have to read my Bible. I've heard so many people who are just like, man, if I could just get into the word a little bit more. For so many people, it's like, yeah, no, I have to go to church this week. I've missed a couple weeks. I, I have to go to Bible study. Uh, I, I have to be listening to more sermons. I, I just have kind of been off my game lately. And it's this have to, this obligatory tone that kind of saturates all of the pursuit of Christ. And there's this verse in 1 Peter 2. It's one of my favorite verses. I know they say that all the time. I need, to, I need to chill out. I think every verse that I've said so far, it's my favorite verse. And it's true, but it's also uh, a, a little bit uh, ambiguous there. So anyway, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful life. And we miss this word that's been so, uh, it's been so special to me. We, we, we look at the chosen people, the royal priesthood, and I could go off on any of these things, but I'm going to try and keep it within the lines here. God's special possession. But here's the part I want you to see. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful life. That you 
may now worship God. It's not you're a chosen people. Now you, now you have to declare the praises of God. Now you need to declare the praises of God. Now you are obligated, obligated to worship. It's none of those things that are heavy. It's now you may. Because Jesus made a way for you, now you may worship. Now you may enter the throne room of God. Now you may read the scripture and learn more about the connection you have to the God of the universe. Now you may lift your voices in one song and actually declare the goodness that God has actually given to you. Now you may read the scripture. Now you may connect with people. Now you may give yourself away. If you've ever heard have to, you're hearing it wrong. God doesn't actually say you have to do this. He says it because he wants you to have the best life there is. He says, now you may. Now you may. Jesus doesn't want your money because he needs your money. Jesus doesn't need anything from you. He wants the best life for you. So he invites you to leverage your money in the ways that's going to produce most purpose in your life. Jesus doesn't ask for your time because he needs your time. He invites you to invest your time in ways that are going to produce connection in your life. Jesus asks for you to move towards people in pain, not just because they need your help, but because in the helping, we get to actually identify and open ourselves up to what Jesus says is the best life there is. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Your life will be full. Your relationships will be deep. And your joy will be made complete. We don't give because we have to give. We give because it opens us up to the best life there is. This is the roadmap to the life abundant that God has invited us into. And it doesn't look like withholding, it looks like giving. So I, I wanna close with this idea. I don't think you're gonna see it coming. Um, but how many of you guys have seen the, the movie Monsters, Inc? Monsters, Inc. So good. So for the three of you that haven't seen it, that's your homework. Go watch that and be blessed. But I'll just give you a brief synopsis. So in Monsters, Inc., there's this incredible story about a community of monsters who run off of fear. And so fear is actually the energy source of the society. It's their currency. They extract screams from little kids while they sleep. And those screams are the very things that charge the batteries that give them the energy that they need to fuel their existence. And there's this monster named Sully who is the best of the best. I mean, he is unbelievable at his job. Every night he just scares the bejeebers out of these kids and gets so much energy to keep the lights on. And as long as the monster world has existed, that's how it operated. That's all that they knew. They didn't hate kids or anything like that. They just knew that screams paid the bills. And at the end, what happens in this movie is that there's this cute little uh, kid named Boo who finds her way into the monster world. And the monsters are all afraid of Boo. They don't know what to do with her. They think that she's contaminated and dangerous. But in the quintessential moment of this movie, one of the monsters unintentionally makes Boo laugh. And when she laughs, the most remarkable thing happens. Every battery instantly charges up. They don't even have batteries enough to contain the energy that this small amount of joy from this little child has created. And so what this movie's all about is the realization that the whole time they thought that fear was the thing that was going to keep them going. But in reality, it was an invitation to joy and laughter and connection that had more potential to give them energy than they ever knew they had access to. And it seems so simple, but I had this moment after watching this movie where I was like, I think this is an invitation to the church. 
Because for years, with the best of intentions, the church has taught people that you better get your life under control. I don't know if you grew up in a church like this. You better shape it up and read your Bible every day. You better actually know the right stuff and do the right stuff or else. I mean, to this day, a lot of churches are still spreading this message. They're known more for hating sin than loving people. A lot of churches are more known for what they're against than what they're actually for. And there's this undercurrent of fear that's, that, that finds its way into a lot of the teachings. And that's a real issue because the story of Jesus isn't a story about fear. It's a story about love. The story of Jesus isn't a story about death. It's a story about life. And Jesus doesn't call us to behave. He invites us to a life that is full and beautiful that has connection, that has purpose, that has joy. And I believe our opportunity is to see that there's a different energy source available to us, that there is a joy that Jesus is inviting us towards. Because, friends, what I've found is that fear might motivate you for a little bit. But I'm convinced that revival isn't going to happen because we call people to behave. Revival will only happen when people get invited to live to love, to connect, to give, to experience the joy of salvation, to see that what is already, that they're working so desperately hard to earn has already been given to them in the name of Jesus. Friends, joy is the future of the church. It comes when we give our compassion, not because we have to, but because it leads to connection. We give our time, not because we have to, but because the more we invest in people, the more we understand the Father heart of God. And we give our resources, not because we're obligated to, but because we're invited to follow in the footsteps of a God who withheld nothing from us. My final point is this, as we close this, this series, and this is a thinker, so, so stay with me, it's pretty complicated. The idea is this, the only way to start is to start. It's profound. I know I thought of it myself. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish Brian would have gotten a little more sleep last night. His points are getting pretty simple. Is it simple? Yes. Is it easy? No. The only way to start is to start. The only way to give is to give. The only way to love is to love. You have to start somewhere and you have to take that step and trust that God is going to meet you in that liminal space of doing something you've never done before. Because if we want our lives to look different, we have to make different decisions. We have to actually move towards people in pain. What does it look like for you to be a giver in this world of takers and withholders? What does it look like for you to have compassion that leads you not just to the people who are obviously in pain, but to the people that God puts right in front of you that have pain in their life? What does it look like for you to take a small step towards them, to give them the time to actually carve out space in your life for messy people? And what does it look like for you to actually invest your resources in the kingdom of God and in people, not just in things that are for the moment? And I've got good news. It doesn't have to be a big start. You can start small. So we close this series. I'm going to close it with the same verse that we started it with. It's in Zechariah 4, verse 10. Church, don't despise the day of small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. So if you have a small step that you can take, that might feel small to you, but you can know that your God who created you, who knows you, isn't just pleased, he is rejoicing. There is a party because that first step, which is always the hardest, got taken. So we're going to respond uh, by worshiping. And would you actually stand with me?
I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who gives. God, that you are a God who withholds nothing from his beloved. Jesus, in this season of uncertainty, would you show us that you don't call us to be generous in seasons where it's easy to be generous. You call us to give in every season. And the harder the season, the more beautiful the gift. And so, Jesus, would we not be constrained to the type of thinking that you're wanting perfection from us? We know that you want our participation. You want whatever gift that we can give. And that when we take that first step, God, that you rejoice in heaven. God, would we be a people, would this not be information that just slips into our back pocket? Would you actually compel us and convict us and show us the way to actually put these ideas and these scriptures into action in our lives? to make the world a place that's more like heaven than it is right now. And God, would you show us that when we follow after you, that we open ourselves up to the best life there is because you are a way maker. You are a miracle worker. So God, we just say that we trust in a miracle working way making God. God, would you show us what it looks like to even have a small amount of faith like a mustard seed so that you could actually operate in our lives in ways that are far beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. We love you, Lord. This time is all for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face -face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at CTK dot church.